Hello out there, bibliophiles, and welcome back to another episode of Drew Archives in 10. I am Andrew Salvati, and with me today is Dr. Brian Shetler. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing very well. How are you, Andrew? Good, good, very good. Uh, working into the last couple weeks of the semester, so always an exciting, if hectic, time. Um, so I, I'm sure the same for you as well. Indeed, but a fun time. But a fun time. Year. So what do you have for us today, Brian? So the I have a few items, actually, this is from a collection, or these items are from a collection that honestly doesn't get enough support, I think, here at Drew. People should be using it more. So hopefully after seeing these, these books or hearing about them, people will come in and take a look at them. This is part of the Byron Society of America collection, and we have used this material in a lot of classes, uh, but there's so much more to it than just some of the items that I'm going to show today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Lord Byron was a romantic poet, a uh, 19th century British poet, along with Percy Shelley, John Keats, Mary Shelley to an extent, and, and others. He sort of created this group or was surrounded by this group of really well-known poets in, in England uh, at the time. And probably most famous of all was Lord Byron, who had quite a reputation as, uh, as a ladies' man, and in some cases, a man's man. Um, he was very wealthy, very uh, intelligent, very active within the romantic community. And his work really has lived on to this day through a lot of really amazing and excellent research um, by scholars in literary fields, in fields of history, in fields of book history, and other areas. And the collection we have actually represents sort of that historical uh, study of Byron and his, um, his friends. So the items that we have on display today are actually some of the first editions of Byron's work that we have here in the archives. Uh, the collection itself, which was brought to Drew um, in 2010, is actually um, has about 4,500 volumes. So it's quite a huge collection of material. It was originally, yeah, it's, it's enormous and there's a lot to work with. Um, it was originally founded, uh, the Society in 1973, but the collections, which really have been donated by society members over the years, really started in the 1990s, and then again came here to Drew uh, in the 2010s. And we're lucky enough to have not only a lot of print material, but some archival material as well from famous scholars of romantic history and romantic poetry. And among the items donated is a copy of uh, what we would call Don Juan, uh, which is probably the, the most famous work that Byron wrote, uh, the most well-known. Uh, it's actually a series of a poem, but it's a series of poems of what he calls cantos, that are published over a period of about four years originally. Um, so the first one is what we're looking at here is the first edition of the very first canto in 1819. And it's a ra rather large text. Um, it's about 12 inches tall. Uh, it, it came in a very nice binding. Um, you can see here the binding it has very nice brown leather, really, really beautiful. Oh yeah, wow. Uh, pages that are actually hand marbled, it's called um, marbled. And beliefs or oh, so all that's done by hand. Yes. Yeah, so these, these oh, wow. here and same with on the back, uh, you have this really beautiful hand, hand marbling that's done. So it's a very high quality piece. Um, in addition to that, it's, it's a rarity because you will notice uh, as you're flipping through this volume, you see the title and then you see a, a, a short quote here. This is actually uh, in Latin and uh, it's just introduced the poem and then the printer information. What you don't see at all on the front page, or rather in any page of this particular copy, is Lord Byron's name. Oh, wow. Now, at this point, he was fairly well known. Uh, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, which had come out uh, in 19, sorry, in 1818, uh, had brought him some amount of fame. 
he was not only well known within the circles of, of poetry, but also just sort of across London, since he was a, a man of status, he had a title, he was Lord Byron indeed. Uh, but the publication of this particular poem led some to, to think that he might get in trouble. It, it's a fairly, for the time, it's, it's fairly graphically sexual. Um, there's okay. some sort of anti-royalist anti, uh, uh, propaganda, so to speak, in here. Uh, and there's text that might have gotten him into some hot water. So when it was first published, he didn't put his name on it. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, if I remember my Lord Byron correctly, he lived in Switzerland for some time. Was this published during that time in his life? So he, you are correct. He did. And he lived in, in Italy for a bit and also in Greece later in his life. So this was actually published when he was still in, uh, in the UK, but he was okay. traveling a lot. So he was often out of the country and would try to avoid any kind of um, trouble at times by fleeing the country and going to the mainland of Europe whether that was in Switzerland or Paris or, or uh, in Italy, he was sort of all over the place. And he had the money and the freedom to do that. So he could sort of avoid, if there were repercussions for the publishing of this particular text, he would be able to avoid that. Interesting, okay. So he could, he could just leave the country if he needed to. <laughs> exactly, yes, which he did <laughs> on occasion. Yeah. Um, but even so, he did publish this without his name attached. And in fact, there's no real identifying mark at all that it's, that it's his. The only information you get is, again, where it was printed and when. So in London, printed by Thomas Davison at Whitefriars, 1819. That's pretty much it. You get uh, a secondary, what's called a half title page, where it's just the name of the book. Again, no author recognition at all. Mm -hmm. And you just jump right into the poem itself. Now, what's interesting, and again, I, as I mentioned earlier, we all would refer to this as Don Juan, right? And they've there right. been made of this. There's been countless sort of uh, spin-offs, if you will, or reimaginings re of this text. Uh, but what's interesting is if you read the actual text from the very beginning, you will find that we have all been pronouncing it incorrectly. Oh. So at the beginning of Canto 1, we have here, I'll, I'll read aloud, I, I want a hero, an uncommon want, when every year and month sends forth a new one. And then jump ahead a few lines, that phrase, a new one, rhymes with I'll therefore take our ancient friend Don Juan. Oh, wow. So the pronunciation is not as we know it today or as we think of it today. Yeah. It actually is Juan instead of Juan. So it throws readers off because the rhyme scheme sort of <laughs> forces you into that pronunciation, which is really great. So right off the bat, he sort of gets that out of the way, if you will, and makes sure that you know that Don J-U-A-N is Juan instead of oh wow but what's interesting is he so i think as as part of this byron knew that there were if especially if you're if you're a spanish speaker you're of course going to say juan right he wants to set the tone and set the reader's mind to properly pronounce uh, pronounce the word um and you, you'll see throughout the entire text whenever j-u-a-n juan is mentioned and he'll rhyme it in that same way uh, the other interesting thing about this particular edition, again, it's the first edition, first issue, so it's, it's essentially the first version that came off the press it, in a very high-end form, right? We, we talked about some of those really nice marbled end papers, the nice leather cover. Again, it's large, about 12, 12 inches tall. If you flip really to any part of the book, you'll see that there are is an incredible amount of space left for the reader to make notes, sort of marginalia. This gives a, a, a sort of an air of high-end work. So the amount of paper being used is much larger than needed. You have only two stanzas essentially per page. 
Yeah. So it took up a lot of space. So what, what could be probably condensed into 50 pages, if you made it smaller and filled up the space a little bit more, takes up almost 300 or 225. So you're looking at uh, almost 250 pages, what could have been done in 50 because of this sort of large font size, a lot of white space. It really is a very high-end production of this particular copy. So even though it didn't bear the author's name, I assume that a book like this, which would run quite a bit of money, folks who were purchasing it kind of knew who wrote it, right? Yes, you're right. Exactly. So there were there were rumors as to who the author was. And while it was not definitive or fully stated for even a few years, everyone sort of knew it was Lord Byron. But because it was never printed, it couldn't be proven, so to speak, at the time. But there was certainly rumor. And then another clinching piece of information, if you flip all the way to the back, I believe it's on the last page of this particular copy. Oh, actually, no, this one does not have it. So this one, again, just says the printer name. Uh, okay. But in certain early editions, and I think in the next one I'll show you, uh, it actually says the name of the publisher, and it was the same publisher that Byron worked with. So it's- Okay, so people who were savvy kind of knew. Exactly. So we're going to move from that 1819 first edition in that very nice binding to the 1820, what is essentially the second edition. Okay. Uh, this is a smaller version, which referred to as an octavo size. So the other one we refer to as a folio size, mm -hmm. much larger, more sort of robust, if you will. The next one, uh, which is the second edition, came out in 1820 and is in not the best shape. So you can see Andrew on the screen. Yeah, right? the binding's peeling off a little bit, right? Yeah, the binding is kind of falling apart. It's really not nearly as nice of a copy. It's much smaller. This one is about half the size, it's a little over six inches, but it's it's almost half the size of the previous edition. Uh, it's also in its original, what we call wrappers and boards. It's just paper over cardboard, essentially. It's very oh, okay. produced but it means that more people could purchase it. It's a much easier entry into purchasing this kind of item than that, sure. that other version that we looked at. Um, so again, this is in 1820, second edition. Again, all we have here on the title page or the half title is just Don Juan, same exact text as the first edition, even with that Latin sort of epigraph at the beginning, uh, printed by Thomas Davison again, 1820. So it's a year later. But again, no information about the author. And here we see a vast difference in how the text is printed. So you still only get two uh, stanzas printed per page, but there's a lot less white space around. The font right. is smaller. The page itself is smaller. There's a lot less room to, to work in, if you will. But there's still quite a bit. I mean, it's not as if the text kind of goes to the edge of the page or anything. You could still take notes in this book if you wanted to. Exactly. And you'll even see here right on the opening, this is on page five. So you're only in the fourth and fifth stanza. And there's some annotation here on the side, annotation here on the left hand side. So what you're seeing is someone actually using this text as a, either as a reference or research version or copy, or they're just as they're reading, sort of making commentary to themselves. Um, in this case, actually correcting uh, in the third stanza, a typo. <laughs> So they went through and, and did a little bit of work, editing work themselves. Uh, but this cheaper copy, it could have been owned by a student. It could have been owned by someone who was reading the text more for the text itself, not for the beauty of the book. 
Whereas that first edition is rather unblemished. Maybe someone purchased it and sort of set it on the shelf as a showpiece rather than to read for enjoyment. And you'll see in this particular edition, so we have some more underlinings. It's it's a very, this is maybe explaining why the, the binding is not in great shape. It's a very heavily used copy and heavily loved. So in many ways, this is this is a nice treat for us to see of how a book like this would actually be used by a reader. It's it almost flawless. It, it almost looks like no one's ever read it, which is fine and it's nice to look at, but you get more information out of a, a later edition, a cheaper edition that hasn't actually been used. Uh, so you see some underlining, you have a question mark next to one of the phrases. The reader maybe had some confusion about what it meant, but at least you see their interaction with it, which is really great. It, it, it calls to mind that Rag and Athan bit, right? Uh, books are meant to be used. Yes, exactly. Um, and not only used, but but loved, right? Yeah. So this one was probably read many, many times. In fact, I, I've opened now to page about 64, which is about halfway through the text. And there's a sort of crack in the spines. This is also the page with the most annotations on it in terms of underlining and notations. So this may be a, a particular area of the poem that this person kept turning to over and over again. So it was well, it was a well-loved book. And even though it doesn't look the best right now. You can tell that it, it lived its purpose and it had usefulness. Sure. When doing research here, if someone wants to come in and look at sort of the history of reader interaction with something like Don Juan or other uh, poems from, from Lord Byron, this collection, the Byron Society collection, can point you to those examples of how readers interacted with the text. And in some cases, edit it to their own, uh, uh, their own enjoyment. In this case, adding the word honest which may have been missing from the from the second edition as an error that didn't make it from the first edition. It's definitely someone who had quite an interest in uh, in Byron, in yeah. So as as a comparison, we'll close up this second edition of John Dewan. I had mentioned earlier that Byron was well known for a previous poem, uh, also sort of an epic poem of many many cantos and stanzas, called uh, Child Harold's Pilgrimage. This is a copy of the first edition from 1818. So again, just one year before Don Juan was published. Mm -hmm. And we'll see right at the beginning, this is actually from the fourth canto, by Lord Byron. So his name is right there out front. And his publisher, John Murray, is mentioned instead of a printer name. So there is no fear in this case of any repercussions, so to speak, from the printing of this particular text. Byron's name is right up front. His publisher, John Murray, also right up front. We don't actually get information about the printer, if at all, until possibly the back section of the book, where let me take a look and see if we even have a picture note. Yes. So all the way down here, the very, very last page of the book in tiny, tiny writing, uh, at the very bottom of the page, it says T. Davison, Lombard Street, Whitefriars, London. It's so tiny that the camera's actually having. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see it though. I can see the text. There it is. So oh, great. The, the name of the printer, which was really prominent in that edition of Don Juan, in fact, the only name in the entire book uh, that was re uh, related to the production of that text, is left as this sort of forgotten end of the book in this particular edition of Child Herald, because the name of the printer is honestly not as important as the name of the author or right. the But when that's all that you have to share, you're going to make it fairly prominent. And if anyone has questions about who wrote this text, they know where to go, which is to Mr. Davison in Whitefriars. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's that's so interesting. And it brings up questions about, you know, what, what the role of the, the publisher was in kind of almost branding themselves in the absence of 
uh, a definitive author of the work? It's a great question. And especially with someone like John Murray, who was well known and highly regarded as a publisher, not only of Lord Byron, but of other poets and authors at the time. And the John Murray sort of legacy, there's, I think there's been five John Murrays over the years. <laughs> there's a current one as well, who have been oh, running okay. a publishing house in London since the 18th century. And so that name was already well known and, and associated with Byron and other big name poets. So publishing even his name on the book would have given away too much, perhaps, the true identity of the author. Ah, you find it missing from that, that edition, but it does start to appear in later editions of Don Juan. Thanks very much for sharing that, Brian. You're very welcome. And we encourage everyone to come and see the Byron collection if they have a chance uh, starting next semester. Great, great. We'll look forward to it. Thank you. That's our show. If you want to see images of the items we've highlighted today, head on over to www.drew.edu forward slash library forward slash special hyphen collections. You can follow the Drew Special Collections and University Archives on social media, on Facebook at Drew U Special Collections, on Twitter at Drew U Archives, and on Instagram at Drew Archives. For myself, Dr. Andrew Salvati, and for Dr. Brian Shetler, take care, stay safe, and see you next time on Drew Archives in 10.